And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, Athletic NBA Show listeners. I'm Andrew Schlecht, and starting this week, the NBA Daily Ding will move to the Athletic NBA Show feed. Monday through Friday, you'll be able to catch up on all of the previous night's action and the time it takes to make coffee. Fancy coffee, delicious coffee. Dave DeFore, myself, Trevon Edwards, Keith Parrish, Jared Weiss, Mo DeKeel, and special guests, and also your favorite Athletic NBA beat writers will break it all down every single morning and you'll know exactly what went on the night before. Your friends will think that you're a basketball genius, but be sure to tell them why. Be sure to check it out Monday through Friday, the NBA Daily Ding, right here on The Athletic NBA Show. Welcome to The Athletic NBA Show, Monday through Friday on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. With Sam Tampering. Uh-huh. uh-huh. To be able to bring uh-huh. people together. What do you do, baby? Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Is right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. Very <laughs> <laughs> awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention deans anymore. Actually, what I like to put in coming to rank. Trial, you're one with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast. I'm Sam Amick, national writer at The Athletic, covering the NBA. Here, as always, with Fred Katz on the East Coast, resident Knicks beat writer. Fred, how are you, sir? I'm I'm just wonderful. You know, I thought that we were going to be talking about the undefeated Knicks on this podcast. We will, point. except they're not. When they were the up two- <laughs> 13 on Orlando, and uh, Knicks fans, I'm sure, would love to know that I'm apparently the jinx, because I messaged our Slack with them up 13 on Orlando at home about how we should talk about the undefeated Knicks. Alas, they're no longer undefeated. because They're not undefeated. Message. They're not undefeated. I, I do want more of those Knicks fans videos, by the way, with the passion and the intensity of the Bronx, but also the random strays at Tom Brady. That was my favorite part. Um, but we'll get to the Knicks in a little bit here. We are going to make our way around the league, as always, talk about the latest and greatest from the first week in the regular season. But the more exciting part of this pod, if I'm being honest, is that we have Tim Cato on the line, Dallas Mavericks beat writer at The Athletic and co-author of a piece that he and I did back in June that certainly uh, caused quite a stir within the association inside the Mavericks front office. Mark Cuban's shadow GM is causing a rift with Luka Doncic. Can't even say his name. Tim, what's up, brother? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I don't, I don't know if I'm an improvement on Slater, but I can pretend to be him for the entire podcast if you guys just 
you know, would, would feel the absence of, Oh uh, no, 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 no. We I'm actually, you. I'm going to, I'm going to ask all questions and record it okay. on my phone and post it to Twitter. Um, so <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm ready wow. to Speaking go. Speaking of random strays, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very inside basketball reference. Uh, yes. Our tampering regular Anthony Slater, Warriors beat writers not joining us this week. Um, Tim, as you are well aware, you know, part of the reason that we will eventually get to the Mavericks discussion is that the central character that we had written about, Bob Bulgaris, um, has spoken quite a bit recently, not only on Twitter, but did a really interesting interview with Pablo Torre of ESPN on his podcast. And it was just kind of the, the fascinating follow up to a lot of the reporting that we did a few months ago that, that certainly reshaped uh, seemingly just a lot of the structure within the maps, you know, GM gone, coach gone. And a lot of changes since then. But guys, before we go down that road, uh, we got real basketball again. And Fred, you do not cover an undefeated team. Um, we still do have undefeated teams. That's a good place to start before we start making the rounds. Who, who still is undefeated here, boys? I'm pulling up the standings. Cheating. Wi-Fi. Okay, there we go. We got the I Bulls. I called up. The Hornets. The Wizards. You are the jinx, Fred. Your old team is still undefeated. I know. The Warriors. The Jazz, the Timberwolves, 2-0, and and the Denver Nuggets. By the time you hear this pod, some of that stuff might change, uh, might have changed. I know the Nuggets play Cleveland tonight. But uh, I think, guys, I think every team that's undefeated right now will continue and, and finish the season 82-0. and 0. That's my... Naturally. That's yeah, typically what that's, happens. That's how... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think so. We, If you've seen it once, you've seen it a million times. I agree. Um, let's break down the first week. You know, you guys have your own points of focus beat-wise, but you're paying attention to the broader scheme of things. And and we always have this hard pivot, right? From the preseason where, you know, I get it. LeBron wanted to, to tell the world that none of the preseason losses mattered for the Lakers. Other teams that didn't expect to win in the preseason like to tell their fans that it really matters. Here we come. You know, the, the Kings are a good example. They won in the preseason and, and, and got excited because of it. But Fred, let me throw it to you. If you got to pick one surprise from the first week, what jumps out at you? All right. I have a, I have a niche surprise and I have a grander surprise. And I think I'm going to go with the niche surprise because it's it's not going to be niche to Sam Amick. It might be niche to Sam Amico, but it's not niche to Sam Amick. <laughs> More random strays. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Davion Mitchell's defense. Ooh, I this know. This is up my alley. Go for I it. I know. I know. Not niche to you. No. Uh, I know he was a great defender coming into the league. And I know that his entire reputation and even his nickname are based on the fact that he just shuts guys down. But there are always question marks about how effective a rookie can be defensively. Even guys who turn into great defenders are problematic defensively uh, when they first come into the league. And he just right off the bat seems like he's like ridiculously good. And it's not just that he's playing hard. I mean, you see him guard... Uh, you know, the other Mitchell, you see him guard Donovan Mitchell, and it's like he is staying in front of guys, and he's not just fighting hard to fight through screens. He's like guarding screens like like a vet with the energy of a 20-year-old and the physical ability of someone who's grown into their body. And it's like, man, this guy is already unbelievably awesome just defending on the perimeter. I know it's very niche, but I just I had so much fun watching him play defense against Golden State and against Utah. And I just I'm really taken aback by like, man, like this guy is everything. I'm always surprised if a if a rookie is is that good defensively. Sure. It's sure. So rare. 
it, no matter what his reputation is. And I'm just like, I just feel like we got to give him his props. That it's dude is, fun to is watch, really man. good. He well, really I mean, how good. many times, if we're being honest, how many times do you start sentences with, you know, it's so much fun watching him defend. You know, we, we just, we're so offense obsessed in the league and even the players themselves are to a large extent. He is fun to watch play defense. And this gauntlet that he's been through has been wild. They, they play Portland and you got Dame duty, CJ McCollum duty. Um, then they go Utah after that, Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson. Then they got, I'm leaving somebody out. They had Golden State last Golden night, State. obviously. Yeah. Oh, but they're coming up. They've got Phoenix coming up. He got Chris Paul and Devin Booker coming up next. Um, I went to the Warriors game and it was still fun to watch him play defense. It was, you know, equally fun to watch Steph Curry and our, our own Marcus Thompson has always captured this so well in his coverage of Steph. Steph has this really interesting quality as a competitor to where he can he can be equal parts deferential to an opponent in a respectful way. Like he said, very nice things about Davion after the game, you know, encouraged him in the kind of way that I'm sure is going to lift Davion up going forward. But in the heat of the moment, if you watch closely, Steph 100% was tired of hearing the Davion Mitchell hype. He would see him, you know, in front of him and that handle all of a sudden would get a little bit looser, a little bit nastier, and he'd find his way off the screen. He had one three, I forget time of the game, but he hit a, a three in a, in a big moment where he turned and silenced the crowd, finger to the lips, and the whole works that was over Mitchell. So he was kind of like, he, he you know, going to give him his love, but also go out there and, and remind you who he is. But Davion's been good, man. They pick him ninth overall out of Baylor. As you guys know, they took some flack at the time for making the pick because they're already guard heavy and they needed a guy who could help them defensively right now. And so far he's doing that. Yeah, he's good. It's really rare for someone to be that effective when they're that young. I mean, in recent years, he is 23 though. I think that's the one thing that's true. You know, that's very true. But even so it's just adjusting to the pace of the game. Like that, it's it's not as much an age thing as an experience thing. Like the NBA game is so sure. much faster than the college game. And and being able to make that jump that quickly right off the bat, not like get it after a month, but just right. game one. It's like, that's tough. A lot of guys don't do that. Like Matisse Thibault comes to mind as a guy who who was really good right off the bat as a rookie. Actually, Lou Dort was was really good right off yep. the bat as a rookie, but it is yep. it is real rare and he is he's a joy to watch. Defender. I've got a I've got a young defender that's part of my surprise. If you guys want me to toss that out there. I would love it. Let's hear it. Well I have a non surprise um and unlike Fred who hints at having two things he wants to say and then only says one of them. I'm just going to say both of mine. The first one's quick. The non-surprise that the Lakers look like they do. I don't, that's that's the least surprising thing I've ever seen. But I'd, I'd say I'd say my are my you surprise. including all of it, Tim? Are you not surprised by the Rondo mix up with the fan? The I, Dwight mix up with Anthony Davis. The I what else do we got? It's been wild. Two months ago, this is exactly how the first week would have gone. Um, it's just it's what about somebody, the, the Russell so, Westbrook press conference? Sorry, I'm interrupting. Uh, I was in L.A. And, um, listen to Russ's credit, you know, anytime a player does his media duties and I mean, that's kind of all we can ask for. And, and we know that Russ is legendary in a press setting, but I got to tell you guys to, the contrast to go from talking to LeBron, who his message after the season opening loss, um, was telling Russ, you know, big picture stuff, go home, kiss your kids, be happy. You have a good life, you know, watch some, you know, comedy on Netflix, LeBron was like was was the older, wiser guy in, in a very good headspace. 
Then Russ comes into the room and it was, and Fred, you've been there a million times, but it was body language to the side. Um, put it this way, after I think five or six questions, you know, after the fact, some of our colleagues kind of jokingly said that that I got the most out of him of anybody. And I think it was a grand total of nine words with a response. So, you know, like, man, the energy of Russ, who treats preseason losses like their, you know, finals games compared to the rest of this crew is going to be interesting to monitor uh, throughout the year. I can't imagine what that must have been like. I've never, <laughs> this was Fred's past life. Like it's just always so melodramatic. I mean, I, I was I was texting someone about Succession, which is which is back, and I was like, "This is like this is the funniest drama on TV," and they just immediately countered, "No, the Lakers." Right. Um, and so, you know, I thought I thought that was good. Anyway, my surprise is um, I, I was in Atlanta uh, for the Mavericks season opener, and I, I think that. The idea that a deep playoff run um, or a team that has cohesion or chemistry means that they're also going to be good. I, I think those get overblown a little bit at times. And and I think that, you know, it doesn't matter how much you like your teammates if your teammates are not like very good at basketball. Um, I, I think we lean into those tropes too much. But something about that Atlanta team um, and and having and having DeAndre Hunter back, something about them just seemed like they really were writing off that, you know, that that postseason run they had. And it just, you know, just the combination of, of you know, they look, they look great. They look they look like they're playing together. Uh, Trey wasn't even that good that night. And, you know, that that looks like a team that, you know, uh, based off the regular season success and cohesion alone could maybe push into the top two um, in the regular season. Now, i you know, we'll we'll see what happens with Brooklyn and, you know, Milwaukee also looks amazing. But, you know, the, the, the point is more about Atlanta looks like a team that's going to win a lot of regular season games. Um, and I thought Hunter defensively was was just, um, you know, that's something they, they obviously lacked um, last season. He was missing most of the year. Um, he really bothered Luca. And, you know, I've seen people bother Luca a little bit. And he responds Tim, by getting to this annoyed. point. Who's been there's no, you know, we always say there's no Kobe stopper. There's no Lucas right. stopper. But who's been the best in, in your memory for, a, for as a, as a Lucas stopper? Yep. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's I think there is an answer here. But what's funny is that nobody comes to mind. I mean, because the way that he tends to react to these settings and these matchups is that somebody will bother him for a quarter or a half. And then he'll get annoyed and he'll go out and, and, you know, hit multiple shots, you know, with, with increasing levels of, of, uh, degrees of difficulty. And he did that once or twice to, uh, to Hunter in the second half. But it, 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 you know, it was one of those defensive performances where it was very clear to me that, you know, he was, Luca, Luca wasn't any less, you know, he still had good stats at the end of the game and he found ways to contribute as, as he typically does. But he, Hunter was limiting him in certain ways that I don't usually see, even if Luca kind of worked around it. Um, so that's a broader point. You know, that's that's a that's a specific element that's different with Atlanta that that is is new with Atlanta. And, and then even more broadly, I, I just thought they looked fantastic and that, you know, all the tropes about deep playoff runs and bringing things together. I think this one actually applies for them. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, mine, guys, I'm typically very Western Conference heavy. But um, the Bulls are going to be my pick. You know, they they threw together this roster that was one of the more device, uh, divisive, rather, discussions of the offseason. You know, some people said, 
I love it. You got vets, you got young guys, you got a bunch of money, you're all in. You know, you got Arturis Karnasivis, the head of their front office with a few bold strokes and Billy Donovan coaching that group and trying to make things happen. But, you know, a lot of folks felt like it was a just a big check to cut for a group that was going to have a, a fairly low ceiling. And three games does not a season make, but they're 3-0. and They, you know, the surprise within that is the defensive side, two games uh, in the 80s. Um, and, you know, you got Zach Levine playing a really good ball, cheating here and looking at, I mean, his PER is 25 right now. DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Vucevic, all those guys, the Caruso edition fitting in well. Uh, you know, Laker Nation is not enjoying seeing Alex Caruso do good things and, and be electric like he has been early. So again, it's sample size matters this time of year, but um, but the Bulls are obviously off to a very good start. And if nothing else, that means that there's more people reading Darnell Mayberry again, because after a few rough years, our Bulls beat writer has, has got a more relevant team to cover. But uh, that that's going to be my pick. So Tim, you gave me crap because I said I, I was considering two and I went with one. My other one was, and we didn't talk about this before. My other one was actually the Bulls. And the reason why I didn't say the Bulls is just because they've had two wins over Detroit and one over New, New Orleans. Orleans. Yep. And and that to me was like, all right, that said, undefeated in the preseason. It's carried through with this. It's not like they're narrowly squeaking out wings, wins. They're killing teams. And the concern with them was going to be defense for the most part, uh, especially, you know, DeRozan is not a defender. Uh, Vucevic is, is I think, better than he was three years ago, but not a top-notch defensive center. Levine is obviously defensively flawed, and you're going to need those guys out there for your most important moments. But something that's really interesting with them is Caruso and Lonzo have been so good when those guys are on together. They're just killing backcourts and making it really difficult to get to the rim at all. Those guys are both really good defenders and Lonzo fits in so well with DeRozan and so well with Levine. He basically fills in all the stuff, like all the holes that Levine might might have. I mean, Lonzo fills in so many of those, especially on the defensive side. And if those guys just don't let people get to the rim, if you just, you know, one great way to to have rim protection is just take away rim protection being necessary more than you were before. And uh, that's what Caruso and Lonzo are doing right now. It's working really well. I still think they're going to be flawed defensively, but. I want to see how they work out their closing lineups in like really important games because Patrick Williams is really, really big for them and is going to be really important. And it's going to be so interesting to see when they go with him, when they go with Caruso instead and maybe move DeRozan to the four and those lineup configurations, they got a lot of different ways to play it. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how they go with that. I like that analysis. The only thing I don't understand is these qualifiers has only been three games. I said it earlier in the podcast, all currently undefeated teams are going 82 and 0. So whatever <laughs> concerns you have about the Bulls, no. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Of all the years I've been doing this, Tim, this story that you and I did together was certainly on my short list in terms of just the unique quality of it. Because most times, we if you're diving deep and talking about the behind the scenes kind of machinations of a team, you typically will focus on owner, GM, coach, maybe a guy, you know, second tier, this and that. To have a mystery character like Bob, who was in the public space, active on Twitter, people knew within the league knew who he was. But I think mainstream fan, even maybe a mainstream Mavs fan, you know, didn't have him on their radar. And to give a quick recap of what we had gotten into, and, and you certainly led the way on this story, you know, you'd been hearing for quite some time that there was a dynamic within the organization that was causing a lot of consternation. And essentially the idea that, that Bob had a ton of influence on roster decisions, on rotation decisions, on on-court stuff, synergy with Rick Carlisle, uh, friction allegedly with Luka Doncic, and that it was all coming to a head in this offseason. And again, we saw what ended up happening in the wake of our story, but we resurfaced this mainly because even journalistically, it's not every day when you write a piece like this, and then months later, the the person, main person that you wrote about, you know, pulls the curtain back even farther and shares a lot. And I got to be honest, listening to his conversation with Pablo was incredibly fascinating because you know they dove deep and he talked very openly about the internal dynamics and the vast majority of what they got into confirmed what we had written and reported, and then took it you know mo- you know really much further. But what takeaways did you have uh, when you listened to their conversation? Yeah, I like like there's definitely a part of me that that almost doesn't want to continue talking about Bob and and I haven't on my own platforms. But I, but I also think there is a responsibility of of you know, we published that story and it, and it, there is a responsibility of us to, you know, react and analyze and, and put into perspective, you know, based off the reporting we did and the and the talking we did in in over over the months and you know that that uh, since that story came out, um, and, and to put into perspective all the information that he shared. So, you know, I think this is, this is a, a great place to do it. Um, I would say that, uh, it's, it doesn't, you know, it's no secret that a lot of, you know, the, the story we wrote, um, if, if there are perspectives reflected more than others, it's certainly more Donnie than Bob. You know, it was not for, you know, it really wasn't even for the sourcing. It certainly was no intention. Um, I've said this before publicly. I, I found I found it hard to find people to provide Bob's perspective. And when we did go to him at the very end um, before publishing, you know, he also declined. So, you know, I, I think that when you listen to what Bob said on on uh, Pablo's podcast on the ESPN podcast, is that you know a lot, you know, a lot of it, you know, most of it is just this is my perspective on these events that are correctly and accurately reported on by the athletic and you know even even you know there's instances where he disagrees with our framing and disagrees with our perspective and that's obviously his right i mean to him you know the truth is different um and and you know but that that's going to be the reality of a situation like this where perspectives are going to be uh different and, and contrasting um you know i will say I, I didn't i didn't hear almost i don't remember anything off the top of my head that i heard that i was just like that's flat wrong um there might have been a couple instances where you're kind of speculating about how we came to the story and things like that. Um, but, but in terms of, you know, certainly a perspective we would have loved to share and, and, and certainly we went looking for, um, that, that really wasn't out there. 
because I, I don't think Bob did a good job making making allies, and he admits this repeatedly on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I also agree with you, Sam, that it was I found it very in- interesting, very fascinating to hear you know the same version of events from the way he interpreted it and the way he saw it, and. Um, you're right. Like when when does that ever happen? I mean, I can't I right. can't think of I can't think of any any parallel examples, uh, you know, off the top of my head. So so in that context, you know, it, it was it was certainly it, it was fascinating. You know, I just keep coming back to the word. No, no question. I mean, you know, for one, I guess spinning it forward a little bit, it the Luca component is so interesting because man, I can't remember the last time and LeBron maybe is the first guy who comes to mind where a player gains so much influence so quickly within his career. Cause to hear Bob tell it, you know, this is for all intents and purposes, at least in this era, Lucas franchise and, you know, his fingerprints are all over these moves. Even the ones that he might not have said, Hey, let's do this instead of doing that. You know, um, his view matters a great deal. And so, I mean, to be fair to Bob, one of the details he did refute a bit was, you know, the interaction with, with Luca, um, you know, and you wrote it well at the time, but you know, the interaction where, Luca had essentially said, "Don't tell me to to calm down," and, and the inference that that Bob had told Luca okay, so to that, calm down. Sam, that, yeah. that actually popped in my head as as you started right. this answer, and he implied that we said he said calm down. That was that was a lot of a uh, a lot of a uh, um, subject. He said we said, yeah, exactly. But I, if I recall on the podcast, he was like, "Yeah, you know, I would never say that to Luca." It's very clear in the piece um, that all we say is that it's it's emotion, and it's emotion that was interpreted. Um, you know, so again, perspective after that, but I will say it, that that's one thing that does that, come Tim, to mind. Yeah, for sure. Within that, I mean, man, the picture that he paints and you all, I almost found myself being sympathetic, not only to him, but any analytics person who is sitting there going, okay, just because I put a laptop on my lap courtside doesn't mean, you know, that that turns me into the enemy. And, and there's for these sure. perception games that happen within teams. And it was a very real thing where players would look courtside, see him with the laptop and think, you know, oh, he's digitally controlling the rotations. Probably right now he's going to get me cut. You know, he's he's emailing Mark Cuban and telling him I'm out. And, you know, the perception stuff was wild. You have the laptop. You have uh, the idea that he said that sometimes he would leave games a little bit early because his office was, uh, you know, a little walk away. And because they had asked him not to have the laptop out, he left the laptop in the office and wanted to get back. Well, now the players think that that you're essentially giving up on the team and that causes a problem. And, you know, the he used the word Machiavellian at one point to describe the different, just the environment within all of the stakeholders internally um, and, and how with he and Donnie Nelson early on, you know, it was cordial enough. And then over time, he came to to essentially decide that that he was perceived by Donnie as, as, as a threat. And then it was uncomfortable between them and a lot of layers to it. Um, but, you know, now for the fans who, maybe aren't aware, you know, they ended up hiring Nico Harrison to run their front office outside the box hire. You know, he's a long time, widely respected Nike executive and a guy who, who is a master on the marketing side, but also talent scouting Nike athletes and a relationship, you know, um, master in the kind of way that helps in today's NBA and obviously Jason Kidd in the coaching spot. But Fred, I know we're, we're bringing you into to our piece here in our discussion, but you know, you know the industry, you know the craft of what we try to do. Um, you know, what what observations uh, did you have as you kind of saw not only our story, but but the pod follow-up? So I have, I have a question, which is, I, I want to see if Tim can clear it up for me. I don't know if Tim knows anything about this subject, but we'll put him I on I don't know spot. much of anything about anything, so. <laughs> I, I, I agree, actually. But so, I'm curious. I, 
I'm listening to the podcast and, and and at one point Bob with 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 Pablo and at one point Bob talks about uh Courtney Lee and this was a topic that you guys addressed in your piece as well and he he talks about how Courtney Lee when he was with Dallas thought that Bob was trying to get him traded and clearly to some degree held that against him and 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 seemed I don't think this might be putting words in Bob's mouth, but from the way he described it, seemed to actually take it personally that that he thought that he was trying to get him traded. And Bob said that that wasn't the case. He wasn't actually trying to get him traded. What I'm curious about is, for the most part, almost always, especially a veteran like Courtney Lee, who has been traded 900 times and played for a bunch of teams, and and I've actually spoken to people about Courtney Lee and People really like Courtney Lee. Like he's known as Bob even says on the podcast, like he's known as being a good teammate, a good guy. I'm just curious, why are players what whether he is trying to trade certain players or not trying to trade certain players? He's a member of the front office. His implicate the implication of his job is he's going to be involved in transactions, whether that's trading for someone, trading away someone, signing someone, drafting someone, whatever. Players, for the most part, understand the business, especially, like I said, veterans like Courtney Lee. Why with Bob? Often it's not taken personally. It's just accepted. That's just the business, right? Why with Bob does it seem to be more personal with the players than it is in so many other instances where a guy just gets traded and they know it's about basketball and they move on? Well, I think it goes back to what Sam was saying about like the, you know, just the perception of him on the on the laptop, on the, on the sidelines. And, and he's a former and sorry to interject super fast him, but he's a, he's, he's a, you know, came as a wildly successful professional gambler and specifically on the NBA. And that obviously is the competitive edge that, that Mark Cuban saw and the reason he hired him, but, and you take it from here, Tim, but I think perception is a powerful thing, obviously. And I think the way that players perceive Bob from, from that layer to other layers as well, uh, I think played a huge part. So the one perspective that has changed for me personally from the time we wrote that story to now is that I think I view and, and, and have come to understand um, Rick and Bob's relationship a little bit differently than what I assumed it was. I don't think we write at any point in the piece that they had a contentious relationship, but some of the wording does reflect, you know, I, I think it was a takeaway a lot of people had and, and I think a fair takeaway from the way we ended up writing it. Um, I, I do think that, you know, Rick listened to a lot of what Bob said because Rick was a very adaptable coach who over his years came to realize and understand that analytics were a crucial part of, of, um, you know, his development and the way that he was going to get a leg up and an edge on people. And where I'm going with this is that even though I do feel a bit differently, a big reason why both the perception was that they had a contentious relationship and also the players um, looked at, um, you know, the players would look at Bob and and have, you know, not enjoy his presence is that, look, Rick would blame stuff on on Bob to the players. And he would say, you know, it's it's that dude's fault that you're not playing. It's, you know, it, oh, you know, they're telling they're giving me numbers and I have no I have no way a, a, around it. And Carlo has always been a a uh, masterful um, manipulator of power. And I, I think that, you know, even as he was taking Bob's advice, I, I think that he would also use that card at times to players. Uh, and I think Courtney Lee is an example. And 
you know, I know ESPN, I know, I know Tim McMahon has said similar things to this is that, you know, it, it was a situation where, um, you know, the players were also having fingers pointed at Bob by others in, in positions where they would believe them or, or they would at least move, you know, their frustration or outrage, you know, from where they might be pointed in, in the direction of Bob. And so I think that was, I think that was definitely a big reason. Um, you know, outside of Courtney Lee, I couldn't say if it happened one more time or a hundred more times, but, you know, I know that was an example. Uh, JJ Brea was also an example of, of somebody who, you know, Bob has said, uh, in various places, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that those two sh- should be playing. I think he said this on the podcast or, you know, perhaps in many of his follow up tweets. Um, I, I can't quite remember, but, you know, he didn't feel those two should be playing. And, you know, it, it's not it, in a normal, in a healthy, in a healthy functioning front office, that would be only on the head coach. Uh, you know, the two players would not know that, you know, an analytics guy who's supposed to just be a cog in the machine is the primary driving motivating factor behind why they aren't playing. Um, and the coach could also just be like, Hey, like I agree with the numbers. I just don't think you guys are good fits. Um, or if you disagree with the numbers, go play them. And, and so I think that's mostly where this stemmed from. And so yet again, I think this, this whole story really comes back to Mark Cuban and just the way that he set up the front office in a way that the structure was not clear, um, that there are people who took advantage of the lack of structure, that Bob was this person. Um, you know, you, you, you were asking me before we started recording what his title was. I think what, uh, director of quantitative research and analysis. Bob said on the podcast, they just kind of came up with that because he needed to apply for a visa. And I thought, I thought that was a really telling moment from the podcast that, you know, even this title, you know, even, even though, you know, Cuban gave him instructions, he didn't give him a role. Um, you know, the title was, was, you know, was they, they came across that just because they had to, you know, for, for legal reasons of getting Bob to be able to move here. Um, and I think that just really sums up this entire story, this, this entire situation in Dallas and, and all of the issues that stemmed from this, uh, really did come from, you know, just the way that Mark set it up in the first place, if you ask me. So to that point, Tim, I wonder what takeaways do you have when it comes to Mark and the idea that, all right, with Nico Harrison and this new group in here now, I think you got to give them clean slate treatment. You know what I mean? We'll see how they function. We'll see how they operate. We will do what we do and talk to people consistently to get a sense of how things are going. But I am fascinated by you know, I mean, if, if somebody, if a human does things, you know, more than once, it you could call it a mini trend. And the two that, that we know of with Mark and, and one, you mentioned Tim McMahon from ESPN. He had a, a pretty interesting nugget on his uh, podcast appearance with Brian Windhorst the other day where Tim talked about the old days where, and his paraphrasing of it was that there was a time when Chandler Parsons was the second most powerful person in the Mavericks organization. And he wasn't, this was not a joke. He was not being lied about it. This was a real thing that Mark and Chandler had become so close that, you know, that, that Chandler's view on the roster and on the team, you know, kind of allegedly was even more important than Donnie Nelson's. And so you got that chapter and then you have Bob McMahon left in. this out, but it was, it was both Parsons and Mark Bartlestein, his agent at the time. It was, it was sure. definitely Parsons pushing it, but it was kind of a combo of those two, but yes. Right. But it just makes me wonder about like, I, I'm a sucker for uh, thinking outside the box is fantastic. So I, I am not on principle against 
adding somebody with Bob's background, experience, you know, competitive edges are, are you got to find them where you can get them. But, you know, the idea, uh, and th- this is universal across the league. It never goes well when an owner inserts a person into the environment that, that you know, perceived or real undercuts, you know, a, a certain person of power. You know, in, in my neck of the woods, I'd written in the past about, um, you know, front office stuff. Where, so when Pete D'Alessandro was running the Kings in their front office, the Kings hired Vladi Divac as an advisor. And on day one, Pete was looking sideways at Vladi because he knew that he was there essentially to take his job eventually. And, and people get territorial. People get um, sideways because of this. Um, what do you make of that when it comes to Mark's, you know, kind of tendency seemingly to to make those kinds of moves? I don't think that the hires they made um, are going to have issues like that. I, I think for Nico, it's fairly obvious. He's a first-time GM. He is learning the ropes. He has a lot of immediately transferable NBA skills that he brings and the relationships that he has with, you know, star players and the ways that he can cultivate and, and build those. But, you know, he is not someone who's going to step in and say, I am in charge now. I am taking over everything because he doesn't even know what everything is. He's still learning, you know, the position. And in terms of Jason Kidd, I just think that Kidd's relationship with Cuban, um, it's gone, it's long enough and they've been, you know, they've known each other long enough and they've had a, a interesting relationship for long enough that I just think there's an understanding, you know, there was always an understanding that Kidd was going to be, you know, that, that when he came in, he was going to fit into what they were trying to do. Um, he was, you know, if you ask me, I think to some degree he was hired um, because he was not Carlisle, you know, and and I, I, I truly don't mean to just totally diminish, you know, his ability as a head coach. Um, but but I, I do think that some of this was just, oh, he's not this guy that everybody hated um, and his demeanor, you know, is is somewhat different. You know, we've we've seen stories from Milwaukee, but certainly on a on a day to day basis, this guy's demeanor is is very, very different. And, you know, I, I don't think that he was ever brought into, you know, they, they were, you know, they're, they're trying some di- different stuff to the offense and to the defense, but, you know, functionally this team is, has been the same, you know, it's the same as it was last season, more or less. And, and last season it was more or less the same as it was before. And I expect by the end of the year, the team's more or less going to look the same as they did the past two years, just hopefully a little bit better. Um, you know, if, 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 uh, you know, if the new additions and, and, you know, just the, the relief of not having Carlisle towering over everything, um, really uh, impact them in a, in a beneficial way. I, I think that's the idea. That said, Kid has been involved in power struggles before inside an organization. I mean, you reach back to Brooklyn and he was there for one year and basically tried to run the organization, right? And then ends up leaving for Milwaukee in part because he had a really good relationship with Milwaukee ownership. And then that didn't work out perfectly either. So um, you know, I have no idea how this is going to go. You guys know more than me. Uh, but that's, that's a, that's context to be aware of in this situation too, which I, th- that kind of struck me when they hired kid. I wasn't surprised by it because it was kind of, I mean, the second that Carlisle was out, you start to hear Jason Kidd stuff, right? He was, he was the obvious favorite right from the jump of that search. So I certainly wasn't surprised by it, but one of my first reactions was, all right, you just had a power struggle in your organization and you're going to bring in a guy who kind of has a history of doing that inside of organizations that he works for. I know you have a relationship with him. 
but I wonder how this is going to go. And I think that's something we're just not going to know until we actually see it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I mean, in general, guys, again, going back to Bob's interview, the, the, the way he portrayed the environment, I don't think was all that flattering uh, of, of, of the Mavs landscape that, that obviously Mark has built. And, you know, and, and then none of it was particularly egregious beyond, I mean, yes, you have power struggles all over the NBA, but, but you know, that image of, of folks trying to get over on one another left and right and, and having it be, um, you know, that type of vibe as opposed to all hands on deck rowing in the same direction. You know, again, you wonder going forward if they can write the course there. But we've talked a lot about the situation and barely even touched on the basketball. And that's the other part that I find interesting because um, this is a ton of noise around Luka Doncic, a ton of change around Luka after two consecutive first round playoff bow outs where he's, you know, it's, it's pretty tough in today's day and age sports wise to pull off you know, the, uh, this twofer where you have the individual kind of universally celebrated like Luca rightfully has been, but then the collective, meaning the team, obviously still falling, you know, pretty woefully short. So to, to look ahead a little bit, um, you know, this pressure is going to have to go somewhere. So didn't go on Luca this summer because he's amazing. And you look at the numbers during playoff series, and we've talked about this on the pod before. It's tough to, to, to point the finger at him. Um, but they got to get to the next level. Uh, I do think Jason Kidd, like any coach, is going to face a lot of that heat. Um, he said something interesting to get a little more specific here, Tim. The other day, he talked about Kristaps Porzingis and uh, the idea that he would be an all-star this year. And then he qualified what he said by saying, I'm not saying that to put any pressure on him. And I'm thinking, well, that's just what you did. And it also, it frames it in the kind of way where okay, if he's not an all star, then you know, then then maybe you're pulling Nico Harrison aside and saying, you know, maybe we got to do something here because that's the next step. If this Luca KP duo just can't maximize it and be what Cuban thought they were when they first got him, you know, aren't they going to have to reevaluate that? It's interesting that you know, from your perspective as a national reporter, you gravitate towards those those you know that statement about the all star and and that you know that idea I, because I just I feel like. You know, I saw them and, and then I just kind of moved on and, and I don't feel like they resonated here in Dallas. Um, certainly they're the type of quotes that could pop up in a, in a larger way later in the season. But, uh, and I'm not really even making a comment on this. It was just interesting that I, I didn't really see that quote, um, really resonate among like the Dallas fan base. It was the something. opposite of right. oversell and under deliver. You know what I mean? It's, right. That's kind of what it was. It was, 
uh, or I'm sorry, underselling, overdeliver. <laughs> I was it, say. It, it was overselling, and and you know, and then we'll see if they underdeliver. It overselling was under, under delivering is what Fred Cat does. Fred Katz does. So <laughs> he's he's that's why that's why you're here, Fred. So, so, sounds Ouch. about right. I need I need backup. That's why that's why Slater's not here. Couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> but go. no, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? right? Just you know that you set that bar pretty high, and if the big fella can't reach it, then you know, then then who are people going to look at? I guess with KP, some of what I've looked at, um, just everything Jason Kidd is doing with KP, um, what he's saying about him, um, you know, what he's saying about his the expectations for him, what he's saying about his role in the offense is going to be, um, what. Porzingis actually looks like on the court. Porzingis was not happy last season. He was not happy with Carlisle. He was not happy with, you know, really his place in Dallas. And if you're a new coach coming in with a chance to, you know, somewhat reset that, I, I think that this is probably how you'd act. You may even give this guy some post-ups for the first 10 games of the year that are ones that you won't give him in the last 10 games or even the last 50 games of the season. Um, certainly ones that Carlisle wouldn't let him take. Uh, in the grand scheme of thing, you know, Porzingis looks much, much better moving, you know, just physically moving. Um, he's, he's got, he's got some mobility back. He was very good defensively against Toronto. And, and, and that's, that's crucial. Like, I, I don't really think that Porzingis' offense really, you know, the, the, the worst realistically it's going to be and the best realistically it's going to be. Doesn't really matter. I don't think it really massively affects Dallas as a team. You know, if, if, you know, it's better if he's hitting 41% of his threes instead of 35, but something about him provides spacing because he's a seven three shooter that opponents are scared of and they're going to close out harder to him than they maybe possibly should based off his percentages. And that's always been the case. He is the, he is the most critical part of their spacing. And, you know, if he's able to efficiently take five post ups a game, and, you know, score like 1.0 points per possession. That's not as good as what a Luca pick and roll is going to get you, but it's solid. It's pretty good. Um, and that's fine. And, and if he's scoring, you know, 8.5 points per possession, you know, that's pretty bad. But if those five post-ups are enough to get him rolling defensively, like that, that specifically is what's going to affect the Mavericks and their ceiling this season is how much he's able to get back to, you know, that unicorn. And that, that was part of him being a unicorn is that he was a two-way player, you know, who, yeah, I think it, even in New York, he was seen a little bit switchy and certainly a shot blocker who could come from nowhere. Um, in addition to the dribbling and shooting and all the other things he did on offense. And that just wasn't there last year. And that was the, you know, that, that, that's the biggest, uh, most crucial component of the Mavericks going forwards to be as successful as they think is that, you know, he has to be, he has to be that level of defender. And so, you know, if, if kid, if kid feels the need to hype him up a little bit, to throw him a few more touches here and there. And he thinks that's part of the recipe to get him to be this, you know, really plus plus defender on the other end. Whatever. I mean, I think that's fine because well, that's, you that's more important. just alluded to, you know, it could be the opposite of what I'm talking about too. I mean, the idea from a coach's standpoint of empowering your guy and knowing that he doesn't like the way that he's not talked about as a, you know, likely all-star anymore. And maybe he's trying to pump him up. Right. We'll see where that dynamic goes, Tim. Do you think, you know, to keep it with the, the kid storyline here, Coaching wise, we keep joking about sample size. It's only a few games, but you go two seasons ago, the Mavs have a historic offense, obviously Rick Carlisle led, but also Steven Silas, who then went on to take the Houston Rockets head coaching job. So tops in the league two years ago, eighth last year, 
currently 28th. Again, incredibly small sample size, but just in terms of the eyeball test on the offensive end and what you're seeing in terms of possible differences and and the way they're using these pieces, uh, what do you see in there? I see some stuff that just doesn't make sense to me. That just like makes me angry from a basketball, you know, someone who's watched a lot of basketball in my life, you know, when, when Porzingis and Dwight Powell are both hanging out somewhat aimlessly below the three point line, or, you know, when, when Powell's trying to roll into space that KP is occupying when he could just be spaced to the, to the corner, you know, that stuff, I, I don't know what is what they're even trying to do, but I'm also seeing a lot of stuff that, you know, just isn't quite coming off and does make some sense. I, I've seen some really smart, good off ball movement, um, you know, they're certainly trying to, you know, not have Luca shoot any less, have any lower of a usage rate. They just want the ball circling in and out of his hands a little bit more often. You know, they want they want the Jokic thing where, you know, Luca is willing to give it up and then get it back and then give it back up, you know, if needed on certain possessions. So it's not just seven seconds, 10 seconds. You know, they don't want him devolving into what James Harden was with the Rockets in his final years there. Um, and, and a lot of this actually comes from, uh, Igor. Oh man, I haven't tried to pronounce his last name in a while. Uh, Kokoskov, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. A lot of the, this is actually coming from him. Um, not just kid himself. You know, it's not all, you know, kid just coming in and, you know, when he was hired, when, when he, when he met with Mark Cuban to, you know, in his hiring process, I, I don't think that these are all things that he, you know, had a blueprints on blueprints of. I think a lot of it, you know, is, is both, the way that kid thinks it's smart to, you know, he thinks it's a good direction to go in, but he's also letting Igor implement a lot of this stuff. So I think the good thing is that if this doesn't work, if in 20 games, you know, just this additional movement um, just isn't clicking into place for whatever reason, they have such a high baseline to fall back on. And the biggest issues last season that really helped them back offensively, and they're still the eighth best offense in the league, you know, and and they were the eighth best despite Josh Richardson just really being a black hole and a drain on their team uh, in terms of what they could do spacing wise. And, um, you know, just a bunch of injuries, COVID stuff. You know, they, they just had a lot of a lot of things that that affected them. And they're still eighth best. I think that if they just kind of revert back to what they were doing um, 20 games into the season, they'll they'll pretty quickly be top five, maybe top three. Guys, let's go out on this. Uh, seems like a fair comparison or question to ask uh, in terms of trying to assess these Mavs and how good they're going to be. Are they going to have a better record than Rick Carlisle's Indiana Pacers? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. They're a half Pacers, game ahead at the moment. Pacers are already dealing with too many injuries. The East is too good. The West is wide open. Mavs got off to that bad start last year which probably won't happen again this year. I think Dallas is actually better than its record was last year. I know I've said that on this podcast before. I I I think Indiana's better than its record was last year, but it's starting from a different place. Uh they the Pacers have a lot to to figure out and they have a lot of injury prone guys and TJ Warren's still not there, so so let's go. Yeah, Dallas. Da- I feel good about that. Dallas was a lot better 2 years ago as well. Um and they massive. I think they have the sixth best net rating in the league, and they massively underperformed because they had that that like historically bad. They had a historically good offense, and they had a historically bad clutch offense, which caused them to lose a lot of close games. Um, I think they were expected to win like forty eight or something, and they won like forty one. 
in the in right. the condensed season. So so yeah, I I'm I'm definitely over on the comparison to the to the Pacers and probably, probably even over yeah. I'm just curious to see where they land at the end. I feel like they might be on the list of teams where we don't know whether to put them. They're not among the elite, but are they the second tier beneath the elite? Are they fighting for, you know, a six spot in the West? Are they fighting for the play-in turn? We don't know. You know, the, the variance with the Mavs, uh, especially given Luca's greatness, uh, is, is, I find very interesting. And last thing I'll add I is mean, that look, I also think they're a better regular season team than playoff team because they still haven't addressed their main concern, which is shot creation outside of Luca. But I think that in the regular season, this is a team. As long as as long as the coaching and strategy isn't just totally holding them back, I think it's a team set up to win a lot of games. Going to be interesting to see exactly how what kind of season Porzingis has defensively too. Like how it, what we've seen a little bit of it so far, and it hasn't looked great. Uh, and they're they're having him defend away from the rim, and they're playing two bigs, and so they kind of have to. And it's going to be really interesting to see what he has defensively as well, because that's that's going to be. It's going to be a very big thing for them. No question. No question. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. As always, I enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Fred, I don't want to tell you what to do, brother. But, um, you know, if you get with Tim and you talk about covering organizations where there are power struggles in the shadows and things happen that that make for a good copy. I'm just saying in the past, this is not an indictment of the current Knicks. I don't know the landscape right now, but in the past... The Knicks might have had some of these types of things. Just you know, maybe maybe dig oh, around. Is there, a bit. is there normally chaos with the Knicks? <laughs> I I wasn't aware of that. I'm just used to like a stable front office with a. In my time with covering Tommy the Knicks, Shepherd it's just patting you on the back and yeah. Well, no, I'm just day. saying my my time covering the Knicks. My 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 full in depth three and a half weeks as Knicks beat writer. It's just a it's just a stable organization that kind of makes solid enough signings sure. and plays good defense and makes the right passes and has a good coach. See Sam Sam's over here pitching you on like another expose. And then the last the last story I pitched to Fred was something about like Zoom. <laughs> like <laughs> like the teleconference. Um I want the oral history on the night where in, in one arena in New York the fans went bonkers and, and made that video that I mentioned and then in the other arena in New York, there were protests over stand with the non-vaxxers. But that's a conversation Sam, for I another might, day. I might do the story, but one thing I promise you, it will not be an oral history. <laughs> <laughs> promise you that much. Oh, man. All right, boys. Be good. Appreciate you. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 